Dear Father, I put this study before you, the work of my hands, the voice that will go out before this crowd, Father. It's of my my own doing, Father, but it can't be of my own thought or it would be of no value. So I pray, Father, that those in this room would hear from you today, that the words would be of yours from the scripture that I studied and from the Spirit's movement in that process, that by the mystery of the preaching of a man, you might speak to your people today. I pray that the things they hear, Father, would convict them, the things they hear would encourage them, guide them, leading them into all righteousness. I pray as a body, as we continue in these studies week to week, you would grow us, grow us in strength, spiritually and numerically, grow us in love for one another in the world that we seek to introduce them to you, to introduce to the gospel. We ask you to grow us in maturity, grow us, Father, in strength to serve. Help us fulfill all the purposes you have for your church. And let that begin even in this moment of study this morning, Father. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me open with a question this morning. What are God's interests? You remember last week, Peter was scolded by Jesus because he didn't set his mind on God's interests. Remember? Jesus had just told him he's going to suffer, he was going to die in the city of Jerusalem, and then Peter vehemently objected to that possibility, and he probably assumed that that objection would have been pleasing to Christ, maybe even comforting to Jesus. And so I'm sure he was surprised when Jesus turned around and rebuked him and said, no, 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 your ideas are the devil's work. You're not thinking about God's interests. That raises a question for us, right? Peter probably had the question himself. He probably wondered, how can my desire to protect the Messiah from death possibly be contrary to God's interests? Wouldn't that be God's interests? Well, obviously the answer is no, because we understand what God intended to do through Christ's death on the cross. He was working to free humanity from sin and from condemnation. So as horrible as that death was for Jesus, it was also the greatest good that the world had ever known. That's what God's interests were. But the Father's plan to put His Son on a cross for your sake, for my sake, is a proof or a reminder to us that God is in the business of turning bad circumstances into good. Uh, He's a God that likes to take dead things and make them alive. He's a God of resurrection. And it also reminds us that God's ways are not man's ways. We would not have assumed that Jesus dying was a good thing until we see it now with hindsight. But that just raises a question. How do we know what God's ways are? Or maybe, let me ask it this way, how would we avoid Peter's mistake? How would we know in advance that we shouldn't object to what God's doing when it seems different to us? Can you know God's interests in advance well enough to not make the same mistake, to not do the devil's work? The answer is yes. And Jesus gives us how this morning, as he gives that same answer to his disciples. Look at chapter 16, verse 24. Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. That's our passage for this morning. But before we get into it, as I was studying this, I realized that there's a backstory here that has to be covered before we really understand these 
verses. In fact, you've probably heard some of the verses in this passage before. Perhaps you've been a bit confused by it. It's not hard to be confused by it. Because in order to understand them, you have to have a better appreciation for the misconception that led to this moment. The misconception that Peter had. The fundamental mistake that Peter had was this. He assumed that God's highest priority was preserving earthly life. Right? I mean, that's why he said to to Jesus, God forbid that you should die. He's saying, God couldn't possibly desire death for anyone, much less his son, much less the Messiah. That was Peter's misconception. He was thinking about death from a human perspective. Human beings, by and large, are preoccupied with their own death. You probably haven't thought about this, but if you do think about it for a minute, it becomes clear. The exact moment of your death is a mystery. It's a mystery to all of us. But yet we know it's coming, and we know we can't avoid it. And people think about it all the time. You live in the shadow of your inevitable death. And saving your earthly life dominates your thinking. I mean, just consider it for a minute. Life insurance. Alarms on your house. Worrying about helmets when your kids ride their bike. Thinking about what you eat. I mean, every aspect of our life is directed at this concern of our safety. And I don't just mean whether you're going to get injured. At the end of that line of thought is, I don't want to die. It's always present in our thinking. And yet there's a huge irony when it comes to death, when you think about the way human beings approach death. The irony is this. The world's solution to this death problem is largely to ignore it. You know, think about it for a second. Many people live their entire lives pretending it's not going to happen. At least until it's impossible to ignore, and then they're forced to confront it because it's right in front of them. And if you bring up the topic of death to most people, they'll just try to end the conversation quickly. That's essentially what I think was behind Peter's objection. He didn't like the thought of his friend and Messiah dying, and at the suggestion of it, he tries to put it to rest. No, 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 God forbid it. We're not going to talk about that. Not going to happen. In fact, when you think about it, isn't it amazing that the world is not more preoccupied? with their death. I mean, given the fact that you spend such a short time here on earth, and given the inevitability of death for everyone, wouldn't you expect every day of everyone's life to be consumed with the search for a solution to that problem? And yeah, there are some who who do think about it like that. There's some out there that are searching for solutions, right? You see that happening, and it goes in different directions. You have those people out there that look for religion, of course, and then you look for those who, who hope for some medical miracle. And then there are those who just settle for better cosmetics. But it's all the same, right? We're all seeking for something that would take the idea of death and put it away. And yet, given all of that, generally speaking, most give little thought to their death. I wonder if it's just ignorance is bliss. Or if they ignore it, it won't happen. Unbelievers generally live in fear of death. And that fear will drive them to push the idea of it outside their minds. That's man's way of dealing with death. But it's not God's way. It's not God's interest or God's perspective. And to understand God's perspective on death, I have to take you back to the very beginning. The very first man, Adam, when he received his death sentence. In chapter 2 of Genesis, we're told that God warns Adam that in the day that he eats of a certain fruit... In that day, he would surely die, which means that he would fall under condemnation. His spirit would fall under condemnation in the moment that he ate of that fruit. And so, as the story goes, when he finally 
did that very thing. He came under a death sentence. His spirit was corrupted instantly in that moment. And yet, his body lived on. His body didn't die in that moment. So when God confronted man and woman in the garden in chapter 3 and discovered or brought to light their sin, he added additional penalties in addition to the spiritual death that had already been experienced. He added additional penalties. And one of those additional penalties that he added was physical death. In chapter 3, verse 19, he says to Adam, By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. In that moment, God declared that Adam's body, which came from dust, would now, as a result of his sin, be destined to return to dust. That is, to die physically. Adam's spiritual death, which happened in the moment he ate, would now be accompanied by a physical death that was pronounced upon him because of his earlier sin. But this additional penalty, this physical death, which was now going to be true for humanity, was not a punitive measure. It was not a punitive measure. The Lord was taking a step in that moment towards solving the problem of sin. Because when it comes to death, physical death, God's ways are not man's ways. From God's point of view, the death of your sinful physical body is primarily about achieving two positive outcomes. First, the death of your physical body puts a time limit on mankind's sinful existence on the earth. I mean, think about it. All humanity lives on the clock, knowing that your life is finite, knowing that it eventually stops. And the Lord has put everyone in a position where their conscience is aware of the fact that at the end of that process there is judgment. Even if they don't admit it, even if they don't want to think about it, in our conscience we are aware that there is jeopardy for us after our physical death. So the deadline that God has imposed on us through the death of the physical body forces us to consider the problem of death and to seek for a solution. It gives us something to consider while we live. And you have this powerful incentive to learn the truth about death, about God, about the afterlife, to even ask those fundamental questions because you know you'll face them one day. The book of Acts says this, Paul speaking, Acts 17.25, speaking of God's plan for humanity. Listen to this. He says, God himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man, Adam, every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. Paul says that the Lord gave everyone life, breath, and then he adds, determined their appointed times. You want to put that in simpler language? He set how long you will live. And why did he do that? Why did he put you on the clock when he pronounced physical death? He says, so that we might seek for God. You think about it. If you could live forever, would you care whether you're sinful or not? Would you care what the outcome is of a sinful life? There'd be no end to it. No, it's on the clock, which puts you under a deadline. So when it comes to death for the unbeliever, God's interests are not man's interests. God wants the death of our body to drive mankind to think about him and what comes next. Meanwhile, what's the world doing? Exactly the opposite. Ignoring death, pretending it won't happen, trying to avoid it. God's ways 
are not man's ways. And in that example of death, it's easy to see how sin will drive us to think opposite of what God wants us to do, right? That's an example. But when you come to faith, and I want to switch the conversation now to believers for a moment, to a believer who's come to saving faith in Jesus Christ and is born again by that faith, our understanding of life and death changes dramatically. No longer are we to be afraid of death. You have no reason to be afraid of death because the penalty for your sins has been removed by Christ's death. So what that means is you now know that when you eventually experience physical death, which you will do, barring the Lord's return, then... After that, you go directly into a state of glory. You do not experience spiritual death. So that means, get this, friends, your physical death is not a problem. It's a solution. It's the way by which you escape your sinful body. And that brings you to the second positive outcome that the Lord wanted to affect through physical death. The first was to put the world on notice. You need a solution. The second was so that he could actually take this old body out of the way so that he can give you the good new one that you want. That's the solution of death. The death of your body frees you from the corruption of sin, from the vessel that you now occupy, which is irretrievably corrupt and unrepairable. And you can all see it. I mean, think about it just again from your own point of view. You can see the negative effects that sin, the sin of your body, has on your walk with Jesus. Because it should trouble you every day. Believer, ask yourself this. From Romans chapter 7, Paul says that there's a fight inside you that's going on constantly. Do you not identify with this? Paul says in Romans 7.22, I joyfully concur with the law of God in my inner man. I concur with it. I agree with the law of God. He says, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? And then he answers the question, thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So your body wages war against your spirit, or as Paul calls it, your inner person. And that war, I'll hear an amen somewhere on this, that war is tiring, and it is depressing, and it is something you yearn to be free of. Am I wrong? And when you experience the physical death of your body, you will, once and for all, be set free from that burden. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, in the meantime, here we are today waiting for that moment. In the meantime, here's one more thing God is doing positively by having affected physical death. In the meantime, knowing that you will die, your body will die one day, and that you get to escape your body in that moment, Paul says, your physical death is meant to be an encouragement to you, the believer. And here's what he means. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9. He says, Indeed, we have the sentence of death within ourselves, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises from the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death, and will deliver us, He on whom we have set our hope, and He will yet deliver us. What Paul just said is this. We're all dying a little bit every day. Do you know that living a healthy life is just the slowest possible way to die? And we're all living in this slow death process, running out the clock on our lives. You know, some of us have more time than others. Good for you. When I die before you, I cut in line for the kingdom. That's my attitude. 
You know, I mean, I get why we want to live. We're not saying we want a death wish and walk around seeking it. What I'm saying is this, that our death is an escape. We're looking forward to that moment. Our clock's running down. We're happy about that. And Paul says, so that we would never get confused about this issue and start to trust in ourselves, our physical strength, our life here on earth, or anything in this world at all, God has put in our life death so that we can escape this body, but also so that in the meantime, we don't learn to trust in it or anything in the physical world. Trusting in something that you know is going to disappear shortly is folly. It's ridiculous. You don't trust in that. It's not lasting. And watching your own life fading before you. Here again, another amen. Right? We all see it. How much we wish we could be 20 again. How much we could wish we could... If you're 20 right now, you don't, you'll get it in 40 years. How, how we could you know, get back to those times of our life that seemed like life would never end and we had all the strength in the world and so on. Okay, there's something wistful about that. Yeah, but why look back? Why look back? Do you realize what's coming is better than what you had at 20? In other words, if you want to go back, it it only indicates you're not understanding what's coming. I don't want to go back. Actually, I would like to get to the end of this about as fast as God will let me go. Because of what's coming next. Paul says, you don't put your faith or trust or your reliance on things of this world knowing your death is in you. He says, but rather you trust in God who raises from the dead. And his point is this. Knowing God raises from the dead means that at the end of the death process, I get something all new and better, and that's permanent, glorified, never to sin again, never to die again. So rather than trust in this, I'm trusting in that. Would you prefer to have a brand new, perfect car or keep the old junker you still have? That's not a hard question, is it? Would you rather have a brand new house or the fixer-upper that has lots of stuff left to be done? Would you rather keep your old, worn-out, junker, fixer-upper body? Or would you like the new, sinless one that's coming? I mean, these aren't hard questions, right? Jesus will raise you from the dead, which means your sinful body is going to be replaced. Which means, in the meantime, don't spend any more time or effort worrying about trusting in, preserving, or otherwise cosmetically fixing up The current one, I'm not saying you can't wear makeup, ladies, or I'm not saying you can't take care of your body, gentlemen. What I'm saying is this. Is it what you have your trust in? Does it define whether you're happy? Does it mean life is good or bad for you? Does it depress you when you see your wrinkles showing up or your body failing? You don't get it then. It's supposed to, so you won't trust in it, so that you'll look forward to what will be lasting. That's that's having eyes for eternity. Place your your hope in the next life. Place your hope in the next body, the next home, the next world, not this one. Stop trying to live your life as if life here and now is your highest priority because it is not God's. God's interest is in something else. Living here forever, by the way, would not be a blessing. It would be a curse. It would be like having a life sentence on death row. It would be pointless. Now that, friends, is God's perspective, in a nutshell, on life and death. And it's the perspective we're supposed to have as well. But it was not the perspective Peter had in that moment. And I think at times it's often the perspective we struggle to hold on to also, right? And it's what Jesus is talking about in our passage. That's the backstory. If you look at your passage now with that in mind, you'll understand it. Verse 24, Jesus says, Anyone who wishes to come after Jesus must deny himself and take up his cross. Now, to go after Jesus in this context means to be a disciple. 
to walk in his ways, to represent him, to serve him, to make your life a living sacrifice, as Paul says in Romans 12. To be clear, he's not talking about how to get saved. In fact, there is nothing in this passage that's talking about salvation. Nothing. It's not about how you become a Christian. That happened earlier when Peter gave his confession. This is the moment following that in which Jesus talks about how you be a disciple, how you serve him well, as opposed to not serving him well. That's the issue at hand in this passage. Now that you have been saved, your service to Jesus requires something. I'll put it simply. You make no sacrifices. You put in no effort to be saved. Being saved is about faith alone, not by works. No sacrifice required. But to serve Jesus, serving Jesus requires sacrifice. Serving and being a disciple of Jesus cannot happen without personal sacrifice. And that's the issue at hand here. Not everyone who comes to faith in Jesus Christ will serve him equally well, and some not at all. And the fact that so much of the New Testament exhorts believers to make sacrifices for Jesus tells you not everyone does it. That's why the exhortations exist. It's also why I think the Lord holds out the prospect of eternal reward for the believer because he knows we often need motivation to do the right thing. That is to sacrifice things in order to serve him the way he's asked. And that is the key to this passage. The key to this passage is Jesus is showing us motivation to serve Jesus in ways that understand life and death properly. The key, he says, is to deny yourself. Now, denying yourself in this context means this. Fighting against the desires of your sinful flesh. Fighting against that body of death that you occupy. Because the body that you have may be dying, yes, but it's not powerless. Medicine won't tell you this. Science won't tell you this. But the Bible says your flesh is a powerful force. And it has a will of its own. Independent of your mind. Independent of what you want to do in your spirit. It is another entity within you with its own power and its own direction, the Bible says. And if you want proof of this, you can just ask yourself a few questions. And it shows the power of your flesh immediately. Do you have a persistent sin in your life? You know, that thing that you know is wrong. You want to stop it. You've been trying to stop it. And yet... It's still there. Tell me you don't, and your problem is lying. (laughs) You know, that thing you just keep doing, periodically. Even though you've told yourself you shouldn't do it. Even though you know you don't want to do it. So ask yourself this, why do you keep doing it? I mean, honestly, you made an intellectual decision. Who's stopping you? Or who's making you? I mean, who else is involved but you? Why are you still doing it? You know, you say you're going to go to the grocery store. You say you're going to go do this. You go do that. You do them. So why not just say, I'm not going to do that sin anymore. And there you go. It's done. And it doesn't work like that, does it? You ever thought why? Why are you powerless in that, but you can make every other decision? Well, here's why, friends. Because you're not in this alone. Your flesh, by its nature, by how it was corrupted in the beginning in Adam's sin, that Corruption passed down, just like your eye color did and your hair color and your your other traits from your parents, so did that nature pass down, the Bible says. You inherited that sin nature. And that nature is in your flesh. It's literally in the members of your body, as Paul said in Romans. And you can't get rid of it. It's part of who you are in that flesh. And it does not agree with God. In fact, it is programmed now to oppose God at every turn. If God says left, your flesh says right. But if God says right, your flesh says left. 
It's an opposing force, spiritually speaking. And I want to make an analogy for you. It's like you have two dogs fighting inside your body. And on the one side, you have your new spirit. You have a, you have a nature in your spirit that is different than what you have in your flesh. Your new spirit, the one you received when you came to faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible says you're born again. That's what it's talking about. Your spirit got born again. You got a new spirit, one that was different than the one you inherited from Adam. That's what it means to be saved, to be born again. That's why you'll hear pastors say, well, you can't lose your salvation. Here's why, friends, because it's not a mental process. It's a spirit change. You don't have any control over your spirit. God does. Your spirit got changed when you came to faith. That's the why we call it born again. Done. New creature. Old things are gone. New things have come. Can't be undone. No more than a butterfly can go back into a cocoon. You can sin, but you can't change who you are. God did that. All right, so here you are now, born again, new spirit. And according to Paul in Romans 6, the new spirit you get is in the manner or in the nature of Christ. Therefore, it is perfect. Did you know that? By faith right now, you have a new and perfect spirit. That new spirit, according to Paul, is one that agrees with the law of God. It wants to please God. It knows the right thing to do, and it wants to do it. And Paul says in Romans 7 that our spirit would never lead us to sin if it were up to itself only. I mean, look at that thing. He's never going to ask you to do anything wrong. What a lovable guy, right? That's your spirit. But there's another half to this story, and you knew this was coming. Your spirit occupy, is occupying a body, a flesh, that is still in the nature of Adam. It hasn't been made new yet. And so your flesh is walk, uh, working to pull you off track. It's like this other dog that's inside you fighting the first one. That's almost the perfect breed to represent evil. There's a better one. Pure evil. It's like two dogs inside you fighting when you think about how your spirit and your flesh contend with one another. The flesh is always trying to pull you off track even as your spirit is encouraging you to do the right thing. They are literally at war. Now you might ask, well, which one is truly me? Well, it's kind of a trick question because they're both you for now. And they're like these two dogs. Which dog is going to win the battle then? Whichever dog wins the battle determines whether you sin in a particular moment or not. You need to understand this is what's happening inside you. As the old saying goes, which dog wins the fight? The one you feed. The one you feed gets stronger and the one you starve gets weaker. And in verse 24, when he says, deny yourself and pick up your cross, he's saying, in effect, deny that devil dog that's inside you. Don't let it get what it wants. Deny it first by being aware of this. How many Christians do you know or do you imagine go through life unaware that this is what's going on inside them? You know, knowledge is power when it comes to this issue. When you face a moment of temptation and you have a choice to do the right thing or the wrong thing, here's what I want you to remember forevermore based on what Paul says in Romans. You have two choices, to feed the right one or feed the wrong one. And it's in your own best interest to feed the right one because as you feed the wrong one, it gets stronger. And what does it mean to feed or to give into? It means things like I put up barriers in my life so that the things I don't do or shouldn't do, I can't do. Weakening that side of me, if, if you will. Or it means that I am going to pray to escape temptation in moments when I recognize that that stronger devil dog is asking me to do something I shouldn't do. When the flesh is exerting its pressure. Jesus calls this taking up your cross. 
And that's clearly an allusion to the crucifixion. And in Roman style of execution, they would have the convict take the cross beam, the horizontal beam of the cross, and carry it to the person's own execution, just further shaming them and, and mocking them in their own death. And what Jesus says by analogy is, we need to crucify our flesh, that is putting it to death, so to speak. But here's his point. The reason he used this analogy is not just because it's you know, gruesome. He's saying something more subtle. Here's what he's saying. If you're going to serve him well, you have to participate willingly in the process of your own sanctification. As in a convicted criminal picking up his own cross to carry it to his own death. Obviously, in the crucifixion, no one did anything willingly. But by comparison, he's simply making an illustration. Sanctification is a process of yielding to the Spirit inside you, the Spirit of God inside you, who is trying to direct you to listen to the right side of you instead of the wrong side of you. The Lord's the one who does the real work. He's the one who convicts you. He's the one who gives you the power by the Spirit to obey. He's the one that teaches you what is right. Look, He's done all the hard work. The only step of the process He's asking us to participate in is the step of yielding to that direction. Participating in our own execution of the flesh in whatever way we feel we can. And the Lord is not going to force you into this process. You know, the sovereignty of God, notwithstanding... He allows us to decide how far we take this journey. You know, it's a journey to follow Christ, and not everyone's willing to make the trip. And that journey depends on our willingness to yield to the Spirit as He directs us down it. As Paul famously says in Romans 8, those who He foreknew, He predestined. Those He predestined, He called. Those He calls, He justifies. But then it jumps from there, justify, to glorify. What does He skip over? He doesn't say that there is a sanctify step for everyone, and the reason is because not everyone yields. That's on us. That is to say, it's up to us to decide how far we want to walk with Christ. Every minute of every day is service to Jesus, whatever walk of life you pursue. And the question is always going to be, are you all in with Jesus? And he says the choice is simple. Here's where he gets to the hard part. He says your choice is this. You can save your earthly life or you can lose it. Now, to save our life in this context means to seek to save the life of our flesh, the life of the world that we have here, the things that our flesh wants here and now, that life that we construct for ourselves. Do you want to keep that? The way it is? I mean, what kind of life does your flesh want, typically? What are we talking about? We're talking about things like wealth, fame, power, luxury, sex, entertainment. And it's not what you own, necessarily. It could be relationships. You know, it can be... The golf clubs, it can be the car collection, it can be the, the, the relationship collection. I don't know, it's whatever we choose to make this life about for us. You name your thing, or things. Saving your life means doing what you want here and now, instead of doing what God has called us to do in service of Christ. And here's the thing, Jesus says, this choice comes at a cost. That is to say, you cannot have it all. You're either going to be, like the great philosopher Bob Dylan once said, you're going to have to serve somebody. And that's the choice you're making here. Who are you going to serve? There's always a cost for saving your earthly life. And the cost for pursuing the flesh's desires rather than Jesus' desires is that you will lose your life, he says. Now that may sound oxymoronic, but it's because he's shifted contexts. The saving of your life refers to your earthly life. But the Bible says that Christians have two lives. The one we know here and now, and the one that's waiting for us in the kingdom. And Jesus is saying, save this one at the expense of the next one. 
And when we say the next one, we're not talking here about salvation again. Not at all. What we're talking here is about the things of one versus the things of the other. There's a life you lead here and now, and this is a life that you construct for yourself. And there's a life you will lead in the kingdom, and Jesus determines that life. He sets the boundaries there. He sets the terms there. And this life is temporary. That life is eternal. This life has testing and trial. That life has reward, the Bible says. And he says, if you live this life trying to make the most of it, trying to save it, you put at risk things of the life to come. And which of the two lives do you think is more important? Not a hard question, is it? Verse 26, Jesus says, Well, what would it profit you if you gained the whole world and did so at the expense of losing your soul? That is, you chase the whole world, you gain it all, you're king of the hill, you die with the most toys, as they say. What good does it do you if your soul is at risk? Now, here again, salvation is not the context here. What does it mean then to lose your soul? Well, Jesus is speaking here in hyperbole. He's speaking here in exaggeration. Because just as no one ever gains the whole world... Neither does anyone lose their soul because they pursue the world. Those are both exaggerated extremes to make a point. What is the point? The point is simply this. Every time you prioritize this life over that one, then there is an opportunity cost. You're trading something. You're making a terrible bargain. You're trading eternal riches for temporal things. And it works really both ways. Think about it. The more you seek for one of these lives, the less you will have of the other of the lives. That is to say, the more you pursue the flesh's desire here, the less time and opportunity you will have to serve Jesus. And the less serving you do of Jesus, the less opportunity for reward you will have in the kingdom. It's a simple formula. Flip it around. The more sacrifices you make of what the world says you should pursue now, the more opportunity you have to use that time, talent, and treasure to serve Jesus. And the more serving of Jesus now, the more opportunity for reward in the kingdom. I mean, it's pick one. And we all pick some of each, I know. So this isn't an absolutism. It's not about become a a monk on the top of a mountain or live like you're, you know, Bill Gates or Kardashian. There's a realistic in-between, isn't there? And what Jesus is asking us to do is to take this and just start, start doing this. Deny yourself, pick up your cross, and serve Him. Gaining the whole world is only attractive until you realize you're going to die. Think about it. Death puts an end to anything you accomplish here. Whatever you think you've done in this life, when you're dead, no one's going to care. And more than that, anything you accumulate, as Jesus says, some of your life is not your possessions. Anything you accumulate, you leave behind. What was the point? I mean, ask yourself this. How many decades of life do you plan to have? Let's, let's go big. Let's say you're going to have 120 years of life. Good for you. Is that really w- worth eternity? I mean, think about it. When you're 120, you won't even know what you have or where you put it. You won't even remember anything. What was the purpose in in collecting it all? Our coming judgment is supposed to be an incentive to crucify the flesh, to make hard choices. That's why Jesus says, I am coming with the angels, speaking of his second coming. And in that coming, he says, there will be a judgment. He reminds us that in verse 27, that at his second coming, he establishes a kingdom. And at his establishment of the kingdom, he says, I will repay all humanity. Now, we know from other scripture that there is a distinction between when believers are judged and when unbelievers are judged. Different moments, different outcomes, different kinds of judgment. That's not being discussed here because that's not the point. He sums it all up with just saying, I'll repay all humanity. 
And in that summation, what he's saying is this. Unbelievers are repaid because of their evil deeds and the lack of atonement through their faith and a lack of faith in Christ. They're repaid for their sins with judgment. But the believers also experience a judgment, the Bible says. One of our deeds as well. Just not for the purpose of judgment. Only for the purpose of reward. The worst you can do is zero, I guess. That is, no reward. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, you come through the judgment as through fire. That is, with nothing to show. But you still come through. We're not talking about works into heaven. We're talking about faith alone, but yet deeds matter for the purpose of reward. And for the believer, there is this judgment coming for the purpose of reward, and he will repay us according to our deeds. In other words, gaining the whole world is not the goal. Gaining the next one is the goal. Jim Elliott once observed, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That's what Jesus is asking us to do. Give up what you weren't going to keep anyway, as he appoints, as he directs, so that you can be available to serve him and gain what you will not lose in the kingdom. Or as he puts it elsewhere in Matthew, store up treasure in heaven. Peter tried to hold on to something he could not keep. That is, he tried to forbid Jesus from dying so that he could protect something he valued in this life, something his flesh wanted in that moment. And in the process, he didn't know this, but he was putting something eternal at risk. Actually, he was putting the whole plan of salvation at risk. Not what God wanted. Jesus was supposed to die on a cross. And ironically, so would Peter one day. And everything that happened in Peter's life, between the moment that he had that conversation with Jesus, confessing him as the Son of God, and the moment he died, everything in between belonged to Jesus. And the question was, if he served him well, he'd be rewarded well. If he did not serve him well, he would not be rewarded well. He just couldn't let this life drag him out of the process of serving, of distracting him from that goal. And I trust that it didn't, for we have the record of what we know in Scripture, that Peter served Christ well. So he was fighting to preserve the wrong life, and we don't want to do that. Don't fight to preserve this life. Just move through it. Fight to preserve what has eternal value for you. Make your service to Christ preeminent. Listen to the Spirit. Let Him guide you through the counsel of the Word and through others in the body. Prioritize eternal outcomes over earthly outcomes. And in a simple way of putting it, live with eyes for eternity. If you do that, not only will you find this life more joyful, but I assure you, in the kingdom, we will all be sitting around saying, that was a good deal. I tell people all the time, what is a pastor's job? Primarily, it's about maximizing your eternal reward. Take what you heard today and do something with it. That would be my counsel to you. Let's go to prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I do pray, Father, that you will bring us to you in a day to come and give us the opportunity to hear the words we long to hear. Well done, good and faithful servant. Equip us for the time we have now, Father. Take away our desires for this world. Challenge us to crucify our flesh in everyday life. Show us why it matters so that we would not lose heart or get distracted. And I pray for anyone in here now, Father, who's heard this message and in their heart is considering what changes must be made, whatever they may be, small or large. I pray they now have the courage and the conviction to move forward in trusting you, the God who raises from the dead, knowing that there's nothing in this life worth saving, especially if it comes at the expense of pleasing you. Give them the courage to make that decision, Father, and to move forward in obedience. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.